Psalm 25, this is God's word, good, beautiful, and true, of David. In you, Lord my God, I put my trust. I trust in you. Do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. No one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame, but shame will come on those who are treacherous without cause. Show me your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God, my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. Remember, Lord, your great mercy and love, for they are from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. According to your love, remember them, for you, Lord, are good. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in his ways. He guides the humble in what is right, and he teaches them his way. All the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful toward those who keep the demands of his covenant. For, your, for the sake of your name, Lord, forgive my iniquity, though it is great. Who then are those who fear the Lord? He will instruct them in the ways they should choose. They will spend their days in prosperity, and their descendants will inherit the land. The Lord confides in those who fear him. He makes his covenant known to them. My eyes are ever on the Lord, for only he will release my feet from the snare. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. Relieve the troubles of my heart and free me from my anguish. Look on my affliction and my distress and take away all of my sins. See how numerous are my enemies and how fiercely they hate me. Guard my life and rescue me. Do not let me be put to shame for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness protect me because my hope, Lord, is in you. Deliver Israel, O God from all their troubles. Father, I thank you for your word, that in it we catch a glimpse of who you are and what you're about, and so we see who we are in you. I pray as we look into the riches of your word that you would move upon our hearts by your Holy Spirit to open the eyes of our hearts to see that all, see all that are, is ours in, in Christ. Show us him now. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. A few years ago, I was at a leadership conference. I don't go to lots of leadership conferences because, for the most part, I think they're kind of corny. Um, anyway, but that's a whole other topic. I was at this leadership conference, and there was a wide range of leaders there. There were CEOs. There were politicians. There were pastors. And all of them were widely seen as incredibly successful in their fields. Like, these were big names that you see on the news. And one of the keynote speakers, I won't say his name, but he was the CEO of this massive nationwide company, and he had actually had a TV show where he would go in to help small businesses. He was widely known as a good boss. That was his reputation in the industry. People who worked for him reported, this is a guy who, who, who um, is a good guy. Well, he stood up and he was talking about motivation. How does he motivate himself to get up every morning and, and treat people rightly? How does he get up and he work and work hard? And he said that he had a daily ritual where he would stand up and he would look in the mirror. So first thing in the morning, he's in the bathroom, he's looking at his face in the mirror. And every morning he would stare into his face and he would say, shame on you. Shame on you. 
Shame on you for the ways you've mistreated people. Shame on you for the times that you've acted selfishly. Shame on you. At the moment, I laughed because I was a bit surprised. This seemed like a very intimate moment, and there were uh, a ton of people here, so I couldn't believe this guy was like kind of admitting to this daily ritual. But as I've thought about it a lot over the last few years, I don't laugh anymore. Um, I don't laugh because I think he was actually identifying something that I recognize because it's something I do too. Now, I don't get up in the morning and look at myself in the mirror and say, shame on you. But how often, how often do I try to use shame as a motivation to live? Shame as a motivation to keep going. I do it. I suspect you do too. Maybe some of us even labor under the delusion that that is what God is calling us into. After all, there's a famous motto saying that I've heard so many times in my life, Jesus died for you, what have you done for him? Jesus died for you, what have you done for him? That's a mindset that I actually think is rooted in shame. But did you know that it is impossible to do anything good with shame as your motivation? It's impossible. Trying to do anything good with shame as your motivation is like trying to run a marathon with sewer water in your water bottle. It will poison you and destroy you. And the bad news this morning is that our world is full of shame, full of things that inflict shame upon us. Our hearts are eat up sometimes with shame, and we can't wish it away. So the question I want to put before us this morning that God's Word answers in Psalm 25 is what are we going to do with all this shame? What are we going to do with it? It's there. We can't pretend it's not there. It's like when we get a terrible, it's like getting a, a, a terrible diagnosis from the doctor. We can't just turn around and pretend it's not happened. It has to be dealt with. What are we going to do with all this shame? Well, Psalm 25 is about this very thing. So let's hear from God's Word this morning and uncover where shame comes from and how God answers the storm of our shame. The first section here is what is shame? So before we go any further, let's put a definition on shame. I say the word, I think we all know in some sense what it is, but let's, let's, uh, let's put a definition on it. Shame is the sense, the feeling within, that something is fundamentally wrong with you. Like you are broken beyond repair. You're worthless. It's more than guilt. It's sometimes very closely related, but with guilt, guilt is usually, I recognize I've done something wrong, but it can be made right. Guilt, uh, yeah, I've noticed I've done something wrong. I feel like this needs to be made right, and I'm going to take steps toward making it right. But with shame, we feel degraded. Like something is wrong with me, something that cannot be made right. Now Psalm 25 talks a lot about shame, and specifically it talks about the sources of shame and what we can do with it. The first source of shame is this, sin. Sin. Notice that David speaks about having a sense of shame related to what he calls the sins of my youth. Or in, uh, again in verse 7, he says his rebellious ways. Or in verse 11, he speaks about his iniquity. 
So in a sense, shame about things he's done that were wrong. But again, this is more than a sense of guilt about those things. David seems to be stuck in playing these scenes over and over in his head. The sins of David's youth. David was someone who worshipped God and worshipped him often. Which meant he would have gone to the temple. He would have offered the sacrifices. He would have received the assurance from the priest at the temple that you have been forgiven by God. But even though he's been forgiven, notice the sins of David's youth are sins he would have already confessed and received forgiveness. So this isn't David having a conviction about something he's done wrong and then seeking God for forgiveness. This is David stuck replaying wrongs in his head even after God has already forgiven him. God said you are forgiven, but David cannot forgive himself. He's stuck in his mind over and over. Maybe that's something you struggle with. A sense of shame over things you've done even after you've been told you're forgiven. Maybe you have a deep regret. You can't get it out of your mind. And it's not like you, you go looking for it in your brain. Where you go, well, I'm going to sit down and go through a litany of all the things I've ever done wrong. Make sure I feel all of that again. It might hit you out of nowhere. But maybe that's something you struggle with. Shame over things you've done even after you've been forgiven. You have a deep regret. You can't get it out of your mind. And that can be a profound source of shame. Whether those sins were yesterday or a long, long time ago. So that's one source, sin. The second source of shame is circumstances. Verse 16, David talks about being lonely. He talks about being afflicted, that he's troubled in heart, that he's distressed. We don't know exactly everything that's going on, but things are not going well for David. And he's wearing that difficulty. These circumstances don't seem to be consequences for things that he's done. Many times in life we go through difficulties that are simply hard. We didn't do anything to deserve them. They're just suddenly on our plate. We didn't bring them on ourselves. In fact, they may be somebody else's fault entirely. But they can still bring a sense of shame, a sense of de degradation or even worthlessness. Think about something like poverty. Poverty, the sense of being poor, the experience of living life, uh, facing things like hunger or, or, or lack of things. That can bring such a profound sense of shame, even though you did nothing to bring it on yourself. Or maybe you've worked a job that you're not proud of just to make ends meet. There's so many people that take jobs that they hate and take jobs maybe they never imagined they would take because they've got bills to pay. And even though they're doing work, they have a sense of shame about it. Maybe you come from a difficult family life and you carry shame with that. Or it's Father's Day. Maybe you had a lousy father that abused you or spoke down to you. And that's not your fault. You didn't do anything to incur that on yourself. But you have a sense of shame about it. Maybe somebody's broken your heart. You have a sense of shame about that, even though you did nothing to bring it on yourself. Maybe you have longings that have not been met. Maybe you're incredibly lonely. Circumstances, like sin, 
can be a profound sense of uh, source of shame. The third source, the sin of others against you. The sin of others against you. He's worried about future shame. David talks about it here, brought on by others. In verse 2, he says, Do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. In verse 15, he prays that God would deliver his feet from the snare, deliver him from traps. The sins of others against him maybe even have David wondering, what did I do to deserve this? We suffer a sense of shame from the sins against of, uh, of, of others against us. Maybe you've been bullied in life. And, I don't, and bullying is not limited to elementary school or middle school or high school. Adults in here know you can be 30, 40, 50, 60 and still be bullied. And that can bring an intense source of shame. Maybe you've been mocked before. Maybe you've been taken advantage of and abused. So the sins of others against you that they've done to you can be an intense source of shame. So sin, circumstances, the sins of others against you, those are all sources of shame. And so I return to the question that I started with at the beginning. What do we do with all this shame? And the bad news, like I said, is we can't ignore it. It doesn't work that way. Never has, never will. But the good news is we have somewhere we can take it. Or better yet, we have someone to whom we can take this shame. And not only that, we have a path forward, a way of hope into the future. Not shame, not more shame, freedom. That brings me to my second section, the answer to our shame. Because all these sources of shame I've walked through, God deals with all of them directly. Our sin, what does God do with our sin? Well, look at verses 6 and 7. David says, Remember, Lord, your great mercy and love, for they are from of old. So, God, remember your love. Do not remember the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. According to your love, remember me, for you, Lord, are good. Or verse 11, For the sake of your name, Lord, forgive my iniquity, even though it's great. It does not matter how big the sin or sins you have committed feel. The truth is that in reality, you do not know the half of how deep sin and selfishness runs in your heart. We don't know the half of it. But God does. And with that, in, with that inexhaustible knowledge of you, with that knowledge of every wrong thing you have not only ever done, but thought about doing, and every wrong thing you will do in your life, God has set his love on you. And he has told us that his love is older than our sin. So his affections were set on us before we did anything wrong. And his love is stronger than our sin. So, that when we come to him, we find that he forgets our sin, but he never forgets us. He forgets our sin, but he never forgets us. What he doesn't remember are the sins of our youth. He casts them away. Scripture talks about it, him throwing it as far as the east is from the west. 
That's supposed to sound ridiculous. That's the furthest distance you could possibly imagine. As far as the east is from the west. It talks about God tossing our sin into the ocean that it might sink to the bottom of the sea and drown. He will not remember our sin. And he will not forget us. So that when we come to him, we can know that that is objectively true even when we subjectively don't feel like it. That is the objective truth of what God does with our sin. He sets it away. He sends it away to be remembered no more. What does God do with circumstances? Well, he guides us in his truth. Maybe we're in circumstances that we feel like bring us shame. I talked about working a job you don't want to, being in poverty, be lonely, having longings in your heart that are not met. God charts a path for us to pursue that which is good and right and loving and promises us as we do this that our circumstances cannot have the final word about us, that our circumstances don't have to be titles and definitions of who we are that we wear. That's what this psalm's talking about in verses 4 and 5. David prays, Show me your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. This is an invitation that in the midst of circumstances that bring us a sense of shame, that we can have hope in God who guides and teaches. And this is good news because verse 10 all the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful. To pray that God would lead us and guide us on paths of righteousness is a profound thing because if you've ever experienced shame, then you know it can feel like you are absolutely stuck. Like you have run into shame and you're just there and this is what it's going to be like the rest of your life. You can't see a way out. You can't see a light in the darkness. You're just stuck in shame. But to pray that God will show paths, it means the God who, as we've said, who all his ways are loving and faithful is the God that is leading you through, maybe, this experience of shame, out of this experience of shame. Now, God may not fix poverty immediately by giving you a million dollars. There are some preachers that will tell you, send me a check for $100 and you'll get $1,000 back in a couple months or something like that. God may not fix your poverty immediately. He may not fix the brokenness of your family by changing it overnight. He may not fix the longings you have in loneliness by giving you all the desires of your heart. But what he does is right now, no matter what the circumstances of your life are, he gives you a dignity. He sees you. And right now, in your circumstances, even ones that bring you a sense of shame, you are one who is loved by the God of all the universe. He gives you a dignity in the midst of your circumstances. He leads you forward within them to show you what it means to live as his delighted in children right now. He gives you hope that, it, that you are not and your hope is not defined by money or relationships or a spouse or children. And he gives you a hope that God will take every circumstance in your life, both now and in the future, and he will bend it 
toward your ultimate good. No one who hopes in the Lord will ever be led to shame. It's not what he does. And what does he do with the sins of others against us? He assures us that enemies cannot triumph over his love for us. As verse 2 says again, I trust in you. Do not let me be put to shame, nor let my triumphs, uh, enemies triumph over me. No one who hopes in, the, in you will ever be put to shame. But shame will come on those who are treacherous without cause. God promises us that justice will be done. There may be people who have sinned against you and nobody else knows about it. And you don't feel like you can tell anybody. Or you've told people and they don't believe you. But justice will be done. The sins of others against you will be dealt with. The lies that bullies or abusive partners or parents have told you have no grounding in truth and uh, they will be exposed. And you can counter those lies with the truth of the gospel that tells you that the Lord of all creation has set his love on you, that his love is older and stronger than your sin and their sin, and no one can change that. The truth that tells you that there is no wound that you have that will not ultimately be healed. All of this points to God's answer to our shame in Jesus. When God walked into our shame, into the sources of our shame to face it head on and kill it at its root. And that brings me to my last section, Jesus and shame. In Jesus, God enters into the shame that is so characteristic of our human experience and he carries it. And all of those sources of shame, Jesus goes straight to them. He takes them on his shoulders and he identifies us with us in the deepest of ways. So sin, think about how the New Testament talks about Jesus and sin. It says that he was without sin himself, that he did not sin. But then it says that he became sin for us. He was without sin himself. He did not mistreat others. He did not pursue the wrong things. He was free from the violence and selfishness that is so characteristic of us. But it also says that he became sin, that he faced the punishment that sin deserves. And in, that, in this wondrous and mysterious and wonderful exchange, Jesus has taken our sin upon him, experiencing the punishment so that we don't have to. And so that sin that has brought us shame, he has taken it from us and he has set us free from it. And this is not just wishful thinking. And it's not even primarily about how we feel about it. It's an objective reality that has taken place in Jesus that we get swept up into. And so all wrath, if you have come to Jesus by faith, all wrath for your sin is taken care of, period. There remains no more wrath for you. When he died... And he was laid in that tomb, and three days later he came out of that tomb. That tomb was empty except for your sin, which he dragged there in his body. And it will not rise up to condemn you ever again. How about circumstances? Think of how the New Testament depicts Jesus and the circumstances of his life. 
Think of Jesus. You read through the Gospels, and what you meet is not a stoic, uh, the Son of God floating through life unbothered. Jesus experienced and he knew loneliness. Jesus experienced and knew his entire life poverty. Jesus was born into poverty. He lived his entire life in poverty. He was single. He was childless. He was homeless. He was rejected. He was abandoned by his closest friends. He was utterly alone in his death. In his life and in his death, he experienced the shame and wore the shame that we try to flee from. But that single, that childless, that homeless, that rejected and abandoned Jesus is the same Jesus that God raised from the dead. The very same Jesus who was entirely vindicated. As I said earlier, those circumstances that are a source of shame for you aren't the final word about you. And in fact, in the hands of God, these circumstances that you've experienced and are experiencing right now actually may be even the places where God's grace will not only be sufficient for you, but the places where God's grace will spill out from you to others. Here's what I mean. The person who's experienced shame-producing circumstances is often the person who is most powerfully committed to people experiencing those same kinds of circumstances. Maybe you've experienced homelessness or hunger, and that will make you a passionate advocate for the poor. Maybe you've experienced a broken home, and it will make you passionately committed to a life of loyalty. Maybe you were part of a family when, when things got rough dad or mom ran and they left and that can make you a person who is committed to staying when things get difficult maybe the pain you've gone through makes you a safe person who can walk with others in their pain and help them carry it in the hands of our Jesus circumstances can become our mission and our calling to move toward others in love. Or think about how the New Testament depicts Jesus and him being sinned against by others. He was plotted against by religious and political leaders of his time who were drunk on their own power. He was put to death in crucifixion, perhaps the most shameful way of execution ever devised. And he was rejected and betrayed, a victim of injustice. He would make mockery of, rejected even by his friends. In all of this, Jesus not only experienced shame, but in a sense, as he experienced it, he swallowed it up. He took it to himself because his death was not the end of his story. The death of Jesus was not the end of his story, but it was the end of his shame. His death was not the end of his story, but it was the end of the shame. As we spoke about, he scorned the shame of the cross... We talked about this in Hebrews 12 when we looked at our assurance of pardon earlier. The shame that stood before him, he despised it. He hated it. He scorned it. Why did he experience, why did he go through it? Because of the joy set before him. And what is that joy? What is the great joy of Jesus? That we, through his life, death, and resurrection, are one to him. That is his delight. That is his great joy. 
He swallowed up our shame. The de- his death was not the end of his story, but it was the end of his shame. And when he burst forth from the tomb, resurrected and victorious over the power of death, it was like a public declaration that shame had met its match. So what do we do with all of our shame? Don't try to use it as fuel. Don't stand up and look in the mirror every morning and say, shame on you. Don't, and be, be very cognizant of what's going on in your heart. As you're walking through life, don't let shame go unaddressed because it will eat you up. It will tear your heart to pieces. Don't use shame as fuel. Shame at its core is profoundly destructive and poisonous. As I said earlier, trying to do anything good with shame as our motivation is like trying to run a marathon with sewer water in our water bottles. But the invitation to us this morning from Jesus not from me. (laughs) The invitation from Jesus is to take our shame and to bring it to him. To take these sources of our shame, our sin, our circumstances, the sins of others against him, to find in him forgiveness, transformation, and hope. And to let that love that he has for us be our motivation. The way we walk forward into the rest of our lives. Not people eat up with shame, but people defined by this incredible love for us. Open your hearts to other people. Put away any judgment that remains inside of you where you look down on others because their sins are different than you or their circumstances are different than you. So when you look in the mirror, I want you to do a little experiment. Maybe do this when you get home. I want you to look at yourself. Really look at your face. And don't say shame on you. But say to yourself, either out loud or silently, I am one that is loved. I am loved. Look in the mirror and say, or in fact, I didn't plan this. I hope everybody knows the words to Jesus loves me. We're about to sing. One of my favorite stories uh, from church history, or this was a, a few decades ago, this great uh, Protestant theologian named Karl Barth, he was on a tour. It was near the end of his life. The man had written millions of pages of theological reflections. And he was asked, You're somebody who has studied God's word for decades. You've taught. You've been a pastor. What's the most important? What's the key truth? What's the key truth? If you could summarize your takeaway from all this life of study, what would it be? And he said, it would be that Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. So let's sing that together. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so, little ones to Him belong. They are weak, but He is strong. Father, thank you that in the face of our shame and the sources of our shame, you will not let shame have the final word about us, but that you come to us to forgive our sin, to give us a pathway of hope in the midst of whatever circumstance we're in, 
and to heal us from the sins of others against us. It's in you that we place our hope. And as you have told us, no one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame. Fix our hearts on your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.